Chapter 34 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 34 A Cruise Around the Reconcavo. On returning to Bahia, I carried out a project that had long been on my mind. When I first sailed into this harbor a year back, I was very desirous of undertaking a cruise among the islands and the bays of that beautiful inland sea, the Reconcavo. My poor mate was, of course, very sad on hearing of this plan. What? he said. You are going to take us up these pestilential rivers? We will all die. It was in vain to tell him that malaria was unknown in the breezy neighborhood of the ocean. We procured a pilot, or rather a Portuguese harbor boat man, who said he was a pilot for the rivers, and sailed away before a glorious sea breeze on the 7th of January. As I had already steamed up the rivers Cachoeira and San Amaro a year before, we made for the mouth of the river Huagaripe, which, after these, is the most considerable river flowing into the Gulf of Bahia. First, we steered right across the Reconcavo to the northern extremity of the large island of Itaparica, which supplies the market of Bahia with fruit. This island is famed for its beauty, and indeed, when we approached it, we could not but allow that it well merited its reputation. Gentle hills rise from the shore, covered with a dense, rich vegetation. A tangled forest of cocos, breadfruit trees, mangoes, bananas, jackas, palms, and other trees. These groves are of a delightful fresh green and resound with the songs of birds. Below are beaches of sand lined with mangroves. As the water was deep, we kept close to the little island as we coasted round it. We passed several little villages whose Negro inhabitants devote their time to fishing and whaling. Small whales are common in the Reconcavo, notwithstanding the constant war that is waged upon them. On doubling a point, we opened the capital of the island, the sleepy town of Itaparica, dominated by an old fort. Sailing from here to the mainland, we entered the mouth of the river, and after ascending it until dusk, came to an anchor a mile below the little town of Maragonipina, and there passed a night among the mosquitoes, surrounded by a dense groves, all glittering with myriads of fireflies and noisy with cicadas. On the next morning, there was no wind. Therefore, as our pilot told us that we were not far from the city of Nazareth, we determined to leave the vessel at her anchor and row there in the dinghy. On being closely cross-examined as to the exact distance, he informed us that it was about one quarter of the half of a quarter of a league. I suppose he thought this would sound nice and precise to us, but it hardly tallied with his next statement that it would require from an hour to an hour and a half's rowing to reach it. Three rivers met just above our anchorage. Our pilot pointed out one as being the river of Nazareth, so we proceeded to pull up it, taking him with us so that he might set us right in case of our being at a loss at any other point. The river flowed across a muddy plain, but ahead of us, at about the distance of three miles, were wooded hills under which we were led to understand lay Nazareth. But these hills, though but three miles off as the crow flies, were an unconscionable way off by water for this stream wound about in a most irritating fashion, so that we were rowing away from our destination as often as not. 
We were crossing an utterly deserted country whose scenery was anything but cheerful. On either side of us stretched great mangrove swamps. The black mud bubbled and festered and stunk under the hot sun. And the mangroves themselves, those most repulsive of all the plants that grow, drooped down from half their height in muddy festoons, showing the point to which the sea tide rose. Over them crawled innumerable crabs, red and blue and yellow and green, the only reptiles that can find a congenial habitat in such a slough. But a mangrove swamp has often been described before, and all who have seen it bear witness to its loathsome ugliness. On and on we rode, and never seemed to get nearer to the hills. Then dark clouds crossed the heavens, and the rain fell as it can fall in Brazil, drenching us in a moment, of course. This did not improve the aspect of our dismal surroundings. At last we did reach the hills and found that the river skirted them. On one side of us now was the swamp, on the other were the fertile but uninhabited heights. The river now wound more than ever, following each irregularity of the hills. We rode on for a considerable time, but no sign of Nazareth none of the bells and fireworks that announced to one yet afar off the presence of a Brazilian city. We, so cheerful hitherto, began now to wax wrathful, and the pilot, so very confident hitherto, looked puzzled. Are you sure we are right? Certain, in a quarter of an hour we are there, was his constant reply to our often repeated inquiry. But we doubted him, and when at last we saw a little bamboo rancho nestling in a banana grove on the hillside, we shouted loudly, to the evident dislike of our guide, who did not approve of being mistrusted. The negro householder heard us and came out. Ho, oh, Patrice, called to him one of my friends. It is the custom to address every peasant as Patrice hereabout, until you know his real name. Ho, oh, Patrice, how far to Nazareth? To Nazareth, replied the sable one, chuckling, this is not the Nazareth River. What river is it then? The river São Jerónimo. The unfortunate pilot, who had already come to the conclusion that the crew of the Falcon were a set of ferocious pirates, turned white on hearing this, and was fain to jump overboard in order to escape our just anger. But Finding that we were not going beyond classical imprecations, he consented to remain with us, and wet, sad, hungry, and thirsty, we rode all the weary miles back to Falcon, which we reached at about 2 p.m. After a meal, we set out again in search of Nazareth. This time we did hit the right river, which did not traverse a mangrove swamp, but flowed over a bed of silver sand across an agreeable and diversified country. Nazareth we found to be a pretty little town, very picturesquely situated on the slopes of a hill. The river is not navigable beyond this. Here it rushes noisily over a rocky bottom and is spanned by a fine bridge. Of course, it was a saint's day, or rather half a dozen saints' day, and the town was en fête. Rockets and crackers fizzed and banged all around us, the bells were ringing, the church was illuminated within and without at sunset, and we witnessed a curious ecclesiastical procession of priests and negro acolytes, certain of whom bore censers and danced in front, revolving with a slow and stately step, singing the while quite in the old biblical style. 
When we had seen enough of all this and had danced at a mulatto ball, we rode back and, at 3 a.m., partook of a digestible supper of cold tin plum pudding and rum. The next day we sailed down the river till we were off the town of Guagaripe, when, the wind failing us, we came to an anchor. This little town is built on the slopes of a hill covered with tropical fruit trees and is dominated by a fine old church. I went on shore with my two friends. It was blazing hot, being but an hour after midday, and all the inhabitants were within enjoying their siesta. We Englishmen were alone abroad. After wandering about for some time, we were passing a large stone house when an upper window of it opened and a man, putting his head out of it, most courteously invited us to come out of the sun and refresh ourselves. Such hospitality to an utter stranger is thoroughly Brazilian. We entered and were received by this kind person in a large room whose windows overlooked a splendid and extensive view. Leagues upon leagues of undulating tropic forest land intersected by many winding rivers. Our host produced English bottled beer and cigars and entered into a lively conversation with us with that unaffected cordiality and charm of manner that so distinguishes the gentlemen of this empire. He introduced us to his wife and children and also to his two very pretty and agreeable sisters-in-law. He told us that he was the chief of Huagaripe, which he described as a very quiet, peaceful sort of place. Just below his mansions was a gloomy mass of masonry, a building large enough to lodge all the inhabitants of the town. That, he told us, was the prison. But do not, he continued, form an estimate of the number of our criminals from the size of our prison. There are no prisoners in it, and there have not been any for a very long time. Indeed, we have no police here now. There is, indeed, very little crime in Brazil. The mulattoes that form the bulk of the free population are all of an amiable, gentle nature, in this respect forming a striking contrast to the natives of the Spanish republics. Neither, again, is there to be found in the free mulatto or negro of Brazil that insolence and those other most objectionable qualities that so distinguish the mulattoes and negroes of the United States, the West Indies, and other Anglo-Saxon countries, wherein slavery has been an institution. The reason is not far to seek. Black blood is a reproach in the latter. The Anglo-Saxon will not marry with the Negro, as does the Latin, and more especially the Portuguese colonist. He hates and despises the son of Ham and all who have the slightest taint of African blood. The mulatto knows this, feels it deeply, despises himself that he is of a despised race. Though feigning to imagine himself a man and a brother, he is aware that he is a social outcast, that the whites will not eat with him or associate with him. So he revenges himself by insolence and brutality, feeling that it is vain for him to be ambitious, that he can never rise. He gnaws his heart out with distorted aspirations and crushed vanity. But in Brazil, this caste feeling does not exist at all, or at any rate to a very slight extent. The best families have Negro blood in their veins. The pure whites are an insignificant minority, and the mulatto, taking a pride in himself, 
feeling himself to be really on an equality with the other citizens in every respect, falls into his natural position, and has no need, like the Barbadian Negro, that worst of his species, to try and pass off his inferiority by unbounded insolence to those of the superior race. However, may the day be very far off when the Anglo-Saxon, like the Portuguese, feels no degradation in allying himself with the African. For the Negro, though he may be a man, is certainly not a brother, whatever his white friends may say. We sailed from Wagaripe at daybreak on the following morning, and tacked down on the top of the ebb tide until we reached the center of the broad stretch of water within the Barra Falsa, or false interest to the Reconcavo, which, obstructed with reefs as it is, has caused the destruction of many a vessel that had mistaken it for the true passage. Suddenly, we ran hard upon a sandbank and stuck fast. The unfortunate pilot, who had been confident as usual, now burst into tears and rushed up and down the deck, stamping and raving. On being sternly asked for an explanation of his conduct, he jerked out between his sobs, Ah, senor, it is not my fault indeed. It is the mermaids. The mermaids, thou idiot? Yes, senor, there never was a bank here before. I have sailed ten thousand times across here, but the last time, yes, close here indeed, just here, I saw a mermaid. I did not throw her a gift, and thus she has revenged herself. Ah, dear, ah, dear, what a miserable wrench am I. We could, of course, abuse him no more after so satisfactory an exculpation of himself. A pilot cannot in justice be held responsible for the acts of a malicious mermaid who piles sandbanks in his course. Had we known the Reconcava was infested by these dangerous maidens, I should not have ventured to navigate its waters in my precious falcon. All the fishermen of this coast have an unshakable faith in mermaids. Few among them are there that have not at least once seen one of these beautiful water people. It is customary to place mirrors and combs on rocks by the sea as propitiatory gifts to them. As the tide was still ebbing, we had to reconcile ourselves to a few hours' stay on the mermaid bank, so I rode off with my friends to the coast, about a mile and a half distant, where we perceived some houses. After landing on the sandy beach at the mouth of a small river, we walked up to the village, the polite, kind yellow people of which informed us that it was called by the curious name of Casa de Pregos, or Box of Nails. The houses, or rather bamboo huts, are not built in streets, but scattered through a dense and pleasant grove of bananas, cocos, mangoes, breadfruit trees, and the like winding footpaths connecting one with the other in such a way that the settlement is a very Hampton Court maze. The whalebones that occasionally form the doorposts of these huts indicate the occupation of the people. We at last, after much wandering in the maze, came to a little bamboo public house where passable cachaça or white rum was vended. Over the bar were pasted two plates cut out of a Portuguese illustrated paper. One was the portrait of Mr. Gladstone. The pendant was Henri Rochefort. We came across an old mulatto boatman here who undertook to paddle off to the Falcon at high tide and pilot us across the banks. 
After being introduced to and then cordially welcomed by every man, woman, or child, we left the village of the Box of Nails and rode back to the Falcon. At 4 p.m. the tide had risen two feet and we were again afloat. Then our new pilot came off to us in his dugout. A long discussion ensued between him and the old pilot, for the former insisted that the bank on which we had grounded had existed where it now was for twenty years, to his knowledge. This rather shook our faith in the mermaid story, and we led our unfortunate Portuguese, who was now getting rather sick of the falcon, to understand that we would throw him overboard if he played the fool with us any more, mermaids or no mermaids. Our mulatto piloted us over the shoals and then left us when we proceeded without further accident to the whaling village of Sawamaro de Catu, off which we anchored for the night. Of course, there was a fiesta, church bells, fireworks, and dancing, at which, being welcome, we assisted. The next day we sailed to Bahia. First we had to beat down a rather narrow channel. However, the pilot, though sad, was confident, said he, there are no more sandbanks now. There are only a few rocks ahead. Sandbanks may change their position. Rocks cannot. But a mermaid can move even rocks. On hearing this, all the poor fellow's confidence vanished, and a terrible anxiety to be easily read on his face took its place. We too felt anxious, for after so many specimens of his ignorance, we doubted his accurate knowledge of the position of the rocks. For our part, he being the pilot, we preferred sandbanks. However, all went well. We sailed down the river with its beautiful banks, passed Itaparica again, crossed the broad Reconcava studded with quaint native craft, and before night we were at anchor once more under Fort Lamar. The pleasant trip was over. The temperature, by the way, during this voyage ranged from 88 degrees to 94 degrees in our cabin. I stayed in Bahia for another 36 hours and then sailed for the north. It puzzled me somewhat to decide what should be my next port of call on my way to the West Indies. Having seen the principal and most beautiful of Brazilian cities, I did not care to call at any other ports of this empire. Besides which, I wanted to make a lengthy sea voyage of it now in order to blow some of the malaria out of myself. Thus, I determined to sail direct for distant Guinea, but the question was whether to make for a harbor of Dutch, French, or English Guinea. Cayenne, being one of the most remarkable penal settlements in the world, rather excited my curiosity. Having no charts or pilot directories for the coast of the north of Brazil, I hunted all over Bahia in search of these. It was in vain. There was nothing of the kind to be found here. This was awkward for I knew that all the coasts north of the Amazon is so obstructed with mud banks far out to sea that charts and good ones too are quite indispensable for a skipper wishing to make any of the harbors, especially if the skipper be an amateur one like myself. However, I found among the captains who loafed about the ship chandlers an old German, master of a bark loading here with sugar for Hamburg. He knew Demerara well, and gave me such plain directions for making the mouth of that river that I made up my mind to sail for Georgetown, the capital of British Guinea. The directions of my friendly skipper were as follows. Get hold of the coast near Berbice, and sail on four fathom soundings till you sight the lighthouse and fort at the mouth of the Demerara River. 
when they bear south-southwest, sail straight in without fear. For a vessel of the falcon's draft, these directions are all that is wanted, but they would hardly do for a much larger craft. From Bahia to Georgetown is about 2,600 English miles, so this was to be one of our long voyages. On the 13th of January, having taken our water on board and a supply of stores, we got under way, the afternoon breeze enabling us soon to get outside the bay among the heaving Atlantic waves. Our old enemy, the northerly monsoon, was still blowing, but not so boisterously as is his fashion further south. For the first 600 miles of the voyage, that is, to near Cape Saint Roque, I decided to keep hold of the land, taking short tacks, not only that we might enjoy the scenery, but with the object of fishing. For outside the inner reef of the Recife, there extends for a thousand miles or more along this coast, and parallel to it, a submerged reef of coral, known as the Prasail, one of the finest fishing grounds for rockfish in the world. We found it so, as we now tacked backwards and forwards across it for a week, securing bonitos, rock cod, kingfish, dolphins, swordfish, and a dozen other species with whose English names I am unacquainted, in large quantities. The weather was fine, though the sea was choppy and sometimes high. So we enjoyed these seven days, for the monotony of an ocean voyage is much relieved by being, as we were, ever in sight of a varying and beautiful coast. We passed the great Cocals, village after village of Negro fishermen, with whom, as they came out to us in their strange boats, we often conversed. We saw Sergipe, gave Cape Coruripe and the neighboring reefs of San Rodrigo a wide berth, and took aboard up to the mouth of the mighty Rio San Francisco, a river 1,800 miles in length, the most valuable watercourse in Brazil, and along whose banks dwell one-sixth of the population of the empire. On the 17th of January, we came to where forest-clad heights fell abruptly in cliffs of red rock into the ocean, and behind them the far purple peaks of the inland Serra Barriga rose into the pale blue sky. On the 18th of January, the coast changed once more, being gently undulating and covered with groves of fruit trees unplanted by man. This day we passed the bay of Alagoas and Masaio, and at night sailed along a coast lit up for leagues by a great forest fire. On the 20th of January, we doubled Cape San Augustino, and soon after discerned the hill of Olinda with its many churches and convents, and the great flat city of Pernambuco. A very bright idea now struck me. I had been rather troubled about my foul bill of health, and I feared quarantine in Demerara. Now, if I put into Pernambuco, where yellow fever had not yet broken out, I might get a clean bill for Demerara. It was worth trying. The Pernambucan authorities, I knew, would not quarantine me, though yellow fever had got underway at Bahia. The Brazilians don't mind Yellow Jack. They are too familiar with him. Besides, he does not attack a native often, but only sweeps off the foreign sailors and such like strangers. Had it been smallpox now that had been written across my bill of health, I should certainly have been quarantined, for the Brazilian dreads that disease indeed, and rightly, for it commits fearful ravages among the South American populations. 
So it was that, to the dismay of my mate, I put into Pernambuco after all. He took precious good care, by the way, not to go on shore during our stay. Refusing the services of a pilot, I took the vessel through the Picao or Little Passage, the narrow entrance I have described as under the old Dutch fort on the Recife, and brought up within the great breakwater nearly opposite to my old hotel. Several mail steamers were anchored without, while within the Recife I recognized to my surprise and joy the Norseman telegraph ship, which, as my readers will remember, towed us into Maldonado just a year back. I succeeded in getting a clean bill of health for Demerara on the morrow after my arrival, and passed the remainder of the day with my old friends of the Norsemen. While I was on shore, a mutiny broke out on the Falcon. Giovanna Panisa refused to obey the mate, drew his knife on him, and compelled him to beat a precipitate retreat into the cabin, where the mate, finding a loaded revolver, in his turn forced the other to retire up the companion to the main deck. At this stage of the proceedings, I arrived on board, and after settling matters very quickly, pitched into the mate roundly for his impotence in preserving discipline when I was away, explaining to him that it was his duty at once hit on the head with the weightiest bit of iron handy anyone who ventured to question his commands. As for Panisa, I got hold of him by the collar, informed him that it was my unalterable intention to throw him overboard, whether we were in port or mid-ocean on the very next occasion he even talked of using his knife. Having thus restored peace to the vessel, I looked around and found them a lot of hard work to do so as to keep them quiet for the rest of the day. On the following day, the 22nd of January, having taken on board an abundant stock of bananas, pineapples, yams, sweet potatoes, and manioca, we sailed out of the harbor, this time by the larger Olinda Passage. It is 2,000 miles from Pernambuco to the mouth of the Demerary. The voyage occupied us exactly ten days, so this is the best log the Falcon can show. And indeed, I do not think it would be easy to find another yacht of her tonnage that had ever kept up a rate of 200 miles a day for ten consecutive days. Our best day's work was 220 nautical, or 253 English, miles. There were two causes that conduced to this rapid run. In the first place, we had done with the northerly monsoon, for about here are its limits, and we sailed away from Pernambuco before a fresh southeast wind which enabled us to run for days under all canvas, spinnaker included. We encountered no calms on crossing the line, but passed straight from the southeast to the northeast trade winds, which in their turn were favorable to us, being on our beam. In the second place, we had a strong, favorable current with us from Cape San Roque to Demerara. It is on Cape Roque, the easternmost extremity of the New World, from which the coasts fall away at right angles the one to the other, that the great ocean current from the Cape of Good Hope striking bifurcates, one stream flowing down the coast of South America to the southwest, known as the Brazilian Current, which, allied to the northerly monsoon, had troubled us ever since we left the plate, and the other stream flowing up the coast of South America to the northwest, this is known as the main equatorial current further on, after it has crossed the Caribbean Sea and the Gulf of Mexico, 
receiving the to us more familiar appellation of the Gulf Stream. This equatorial current is of great assistance to vessels proceeding up the coast from the Cape San Roque. The rate of it varies according to the season of the year, sometimes, it is said, flowing as rapidly as four knots an hour. The greatest difference we observed between our distance run in 24 hours, as recorded by log and observation, was 50 miles, which would give a two-knot current. For the first six days of the voyage, the wind blew fresh from the southeast, enabling us to make about seven to eight knots an hour through the water. This brought us to the equator, when the wind veered rapidly around to the northeast, and so continued till we reached Demerara. We did not encounter any calm whatsoever. Indeed, the lowest rate logged for any hour of the voyage was five and a half knots. For the first few days, we hugged the coast, saw the port of Parahiba, and passed close to the Rocas, those perilous reefs that lie off Cape San Roque, and which are so dreaded by mariners. But now a lighthouse is being constructed on one of the higher rocks. We could perceive the men working on it as we sailed by. During this portion of the voyage, we passed many gigandas, the clumsy native coasters. They sail well, but do not appear to be built for really bad weather but bad weather is of rare occurrence on this tropical ocean. I suppose when a jaganda is caught by a gale outside, it goes down. After doubling Cape San Roque, we left the land and took a course more to seawards so as to avoid the variable inshore currents and to fall in with the main body of the equatorial current. When we were off San Luis do Marano, we had an offing of about 200 miles, which we kept till we approached Guinea. We caught a great many fish during this run, especially dolphins of large size. It was indeed pleasant, though rather monotonous sailing. As the wind and current were in the same direction, the sea was remarkably smooth, rolling about in long, oily-looking waves of tepid water under a blazing sun. The temperature in our cabin was high, 85 degrees to 90 degrees. We crossed the equator on the 26th of January in longitude 42 degrees 28 minutes. On the 28th of January, we were off the mouths of the Amazon, but too far out to sea to find ourselves in the discolored water that this huge river pours out into the ocean. Now that we had a northeast wind and a beam sea, high and choppy at times, our motion was not so comfortable as it had been for the first six days of the voyage. We rolled heavily, took much water on board, and on several occasions were under two-reefed mainsail. On the 29th of January, being off the north frontier of Brazil and Cayenne bearing west of us 170 miles, we steered so as to approach the coast once more. This day we came into a very heavy sea, with nasty waves breaking and curling up against the rapid current. With us, the wind was not strong, but a gale must have been blowing somewhere. We had now sailed into a very different climate from that which prevails on the healthy coasts of Brazil. The sky, instead of being clear, was ever overcast. An unhealthy yellow haze hung upon the sea by night, and the atmosphere was oppressively close. I have since read a work by a naval officer who observes how debilitating an effect is produced by this great heat accompanied by moisture. 
He states he often had half his men below on the sick list while sailing off the coast of the Guineas. The crew of the Falcon, who seems to have got into a generally bad state of health, felt these influences and were suffering from fever and those bilious and intestinal disorders that are common in these latitudes. On the 31st of January, having obtained no observation of the sun for two days in consequence of the heavy vapors, but knowing that the land could not be far off, we hove to at daybreak to take soundings, but found no bottom in forty fathoms. This day we contrived to get the meridian altitude and an observation of the sun for longitude at 4 p.m. We discovered that we were but 20 miles to the north of the river Suriname in Dutch Guinea. On taking a cast of the lead, we found that we were in 12 fathoms. The water here was a dirty soup color, as it is far out to sea all along this coast. End of chapter 34